Well, we will pray. <laughs> yeah, I pray that you would challenge us, um, Father, and I pray that you would open our hearts and uh, make them receptive to what it is you want us to hear um, through this message. I pray through the Holy Spirit that that would land where it should. And I pray that in our church we would have unity in the essentials of our faith, in the non-essentials we would allow liberty, and in everything that we would have love. Amen. You can hear me now. Good. How many people are first aid trained? Hands up. First of all, Ben, make a note because we're short and we need a few extras. But also, <clears throat> you guys are first aid trained. Your training would have looked a little bit similar to mine. So usually, wherever you work, you'll have been taken into a room somewhere and you'll have an instructor come out. It's usually one of those enthusiastic sorts. The sleeves are rolled up. They've been out at the weekend helping with St. John's Ambulance. And um, out comes little Annie. And you'll be doing your training on CPR. It's good training. And it's kind of as near as you can get it uh, situation where you learn how to keep two things going. You learn how to keep going breathing and a heartbeat. This training has become really important because it enables people to keep other people alive. And if you don't have a heartbeat and you're not breathing, you're dead. The Canadian Lung Association used this quote on a poster. If you're not breathing, nothing else matters. We've been going through a sermon series on Romans and it would be useful to take stock of where we are. So I'm going to introduce a little bit of John Stott early on here to help just plot on the chart of this letter to the Romans written by Paul where we are. Uh, He says this, For vital to his strategy in these chapters is his insistence that, from a gospel perspective, questions over diets and days are precisely non-essentials. So this church in Rome is alive. At its heart, it's accepted the good news of Jesus Christ and has grasped salvation by grace through faith. It has a heartbeat and it is breathing. Sleeves back down at this point. Accepting the context of the passage, here we can see a living, breathing church in Rome who are dealing with the contentious issues of the day. Paul's language in this passage is... It's not as forceful as what it would be in other letters at certain points in those letters. Um, We see Paul earlier in his missionary journeys performing spiritual CPR to uh, the Galatians to get them breathing again. So they're gasping for air, believing in a gospel that Paul describes as no gospel at all. Chapter 1, verse 6. He's passionately trying to get the Philippians' heart going so it beats in time with the essentials of faith, not the essentials of the law. The Galatians wandering off to a way pretending to be the gospel. The Philippians are receiving teaching that they had to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul uses language such as, I am shocked and watch out for those dogs. We don't see that here because he's dealing with the essentials of their faith in the other letters. In other words, they aren't spiritually breathing. It's a matter of life and death. So what do you do in that situation? You get down, you crack on and you perform CPR. But Paul knows the signs of a dead or dying church, but his approach to the Romans at this stage is different. However, just because something is a non-essential doesn't mean that it's not important. So, right, question. In our living, breathing church, what are our contentious, non-essential issues of our day? 
a minute just to think about that. The context here in Rome, as far as we can tell from the remaining evidence, is that under Claudius Caesar, the Jews have been expelled from Rome. Uh, We see this in Acts 18, verse 2, where Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. This was probably due, or it's been suggested it's due to the amount of converts that the Jewish church is creating, or that certain factions of the church have been seen as political groups and it's unnerved the authorities. But after the Jews are expelled from Rome, you've got Gentile believers stepping into positions of leadership in the church. And with that comes a group of believers whose history is not stooped in the observance of festivals or special Sabbath days or in dietary restrictions in the main. Based on current belief or the withdrawal from eating meat which was going on, the uncertain origin of meat and the possibility of sacrificial meat ending up on the market stall and incidentally on uh, your dinner plate, which led to a complete not eating of meat. The Jews, a short while after, have returned following the expulsion season and came back to churches as believers in the risen Jesus Christ, but finding Christians who are living out of freedom uh, that previously had been restricted by scruples around what what I will call Old Testament behaviour. So the division, it wasn't just Jew or Gentile, it wasn't as clean cut as that, as with any internal church disagreement, there are shades of grey, there would have been some Gentile believers who've come from pagan religions and would have also not eaten meat through fear of being dragged into old ways, and there would have been the odd Jew that's really grasped the freedom of the gospel and took himself down to McDonald's for a burger to celebrate. Um, but Paul is dealing with the non-essential aspects of faith, a group of believers who are hankering after 613 some odd laws and a calendar full of special events, and another group of believers who love nothing more than a mixed grill in church on Wednesday. It's just different. So what is God saying about how this can be dealt with? Turn with me, if you've not got it open already, page 1140 of the Church Bibles, the letter to the Romans, chapter 14, verses 1 to 8. What can we do? Accept someone and be genuine. Verse 1 says, Accept him whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. Yes, we need to clarify that in previous letters Paul has um, challenged people over sin, and it's right to challenge sin. That's not disputable. But I love the original Greek word that we, we now use for that word, accept. What it means is to take in addition to. So Paul isn't saying to Christians we should show people a seat and then just ignore them for the rest of a church service. It's about taking a believer into the heart of the church family. And what does he tell them not to do? Whilst welcoming and taking this person into the heart of the church family, don't judge them quarrelling over disputable matters. Don't accept somebody at the door gently and welcome them into the main church building, sit them down and then shine a light in their eyes straight away. So what do you think about the service pattern? Straight away... When I arrived at Trinity, I had a very poor understanding of the scriptures. I think that's fair. If my theology is a 5,000-piece jigsaw, I think I probably had about 100 pieces in place. It's better than that now. Um, Thank goodness. 
arguably. I've got the outside pieces in place, but you know, I'm still working on the, the 4,000 pieces inside that framework. But there's been times when I've disagreed with certain practices or decisions that get made in the church, still do, on occasion. But some of those things, as I've grown, and as I have grown in my faith, I now agree with that. I've just grown into that place. And there's other things where I've just matured in faith. I can now see why decisions get made like that. But how is that possible? How am I possibly still here? It's because you didn't condemn me the minute that I walked in the door. In verse 3, we come to a bit about how the weaker and the stronger believers treat each other. We've established that they're not spiritually dead, they have salvation, but in being alive, they're living out the non-essential aspects of their faith slightly differently. The stronger believers are looking down on the weaker ones. The weaker ones are condemning the stronger believers. You can, you can just imagine the conversation. It's, don't you tell me I need to observe the rules, you weak, legalistic brother. And then the reply comes back, weak-minded indeed. Well, you know, your lack of observance of anything is evidence of your sinful self. Be condemned. The verses highlighting it's the behaviours that we sometimes employ with each other. Don't, don't give me your well-thought-out excuse about why you're allowed to judge somebody. Because this passage goes on to explain that you're not. You're called to accept people. Verse 3. Because God has accepted them. The Greek origin of the word accept in verse 3 is the same as verse 1, as I've explained. God is saying to these Christians, take people in addition to you, because I've taken you in addition to my own. Welcome people, as I have welcomed you. Verse 4 confirms it. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? Paul says, if God has accepted us all, and we belong to him, we're accountable to him. Who are you to judge another believer's faith? To his own master he stands or falls. Not only that, but God is working in that person's life. Hopefully, in a church that's allowing enough space for God to do his thing, like what you did with me. Building faith so they will grow in Christ-like maturity. And what does it say after? It says, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. When you judge somebody and, and actively intervene on that, to make them more like me quick, you're in danger of usurping the place of Christ in their faith journey. Don't perform CPR on somebody that isn't spiritually dead. However, this does not mean don't teach, disciple, or educate. On the contrary, nurture existing faith and do it with patience. Verse 2. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. Another man whose faith is weak, it's only vegetables. This is the difference in the, the Gentile believers at McDonald's. The Jewish believers are still observing the law. What does the Bible say that both have faith. And read verse 6. Their motives are the same. Paul tells the Ephesians in um, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The faith that they have is from God, and it isn't based on their actions. Now let's recap. If someone isn't breathing... 
you get down and you give them CPR. If like the Galatians or the Philippians, there's an issue that needs stamping out, lovingly stamp it out. But in the non-essentials of our faith, question, where is the liberty? You might be racking your brain for what is a non-essential of faith. Here's a few. How many services do we want on a Sunday morning? One or two. Do clergy wear robes or not? Do you prefer the band or the organ? Nurturing involves encouraging people, not crabbing. This is what crabbing is. You catch a crab, you put it in a bucket with his mates. What happens is, you get the bigger crab, climb on top of the smaller crab, because the bigger crab wants to get to the top of his bucket for his own glory. There's no love whatsoever. That's what crabbing is. Maybe you think that Christians, what you might deem moody non-essentials are not going to be resolved like you crabbing them to death. But the fact they will stand or fall before the Lord means that you just have to go in for the kill on this non-essential. Explain why their salvation depends on whether we have one service or two. But read the rest of verse 4. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I wonder sometimes if the kingdom of God just won't it just won't grow without me ramming the non-essentials of my faith down my neighbour's throat every given opportunity. Mine is, if you, what is it? If you don't join an outreach group, oh, something bad's going to happen to you. But maybe you're just called to be a community assistant and in that very important role, help people encounter the living God in communion with other people. And what am I doing? I'm dragging you off to an outreach group that you don't really want to be at. You're not called to be there. But I've decided that that's important for you. I've experienced crabbing in a few of my experiences here. This is the last thing I'll say in it. It makes you feel like you don't know the God that you've loved and trusted all of your life. It's horrible. However, with loving teaching and discipleship, I have grown. The difference is whether you're knocking somebody down or whether you're building them up. Number three. Don't elevate the non-essentials. Passage moves on from diets today. The Jewish believers observed 613 or some odd God-given laws, a variety of Sabbath days and festivals. Um, the circumstances of this church's existence has left it with a divide over this issue. Well, let's look at what Jesus says when he's questioned over the Sabbath day in Luke 6. I only figured this out when we did morning prayer the other day. Son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Yes, observe the Sabbath. In this passage, it's actually referring to festivals throughout the year. But don't elevate the observance of the Sabbath above the heart of lights there in the first place. More interesting is the statement, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Oh, hang on. Whoa, whoa. What, What is that saying? Um, it isn't imperative in one sense whether we observe days or not. Or it isn't imperative whether we have one or two services in the morning. Surely somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. So St. Paul appears now. That would never happen. It's not biblical. He says, um, while I'm here, throw me a question. You can have one question. And we shout from the back, should we have one or two morning services? He says, oh yeah, that's, that's a really important issue. And it is an important issue. Um, however, um, I'm not fussed, really. As long as you're convinced in your own mind, with your understanding of the gospel, 
that's fine. Well, that's good. We just completely wasted a question. I mean, John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, says, if we're able to receive something from God with thanksgiving as his gift to us, then we can offer it back in service to him. I reckon as long as we offer our services to God in praise and worship, then we could have three or four, and he wouldn't mind. If you're acting in the best way you can with what has been revealed to you from Scripture and are convinced in your own mind, then you're not in a bad place. If we have disagreement over non-essential items on the agenda, we need to work together to resolve them, to move forward sometimes from a reformed position. But if we can't agree, we're called to love each other and exist together, not up sticks and leave church. Because I promise you, the one down the road is just as broken as what we are in its own unique way. How do we do it? How do we accept Christians around us that are spiritually living, breathing Christians, but in some way just via the non-essentials are just different to us? The answer is, love them. Why do we do that? Because Christ loved you first. Paul tells the Ephesians, he's, he's offering them some encouragement around his own suffering. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure and the fullness of God. In the essentials of our faith, there must be unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in everything, love. This raises two questions for you, I suggest immediately. What is an essential and a non-essential part of my faith? Well, the long answer is, come on a Sunday, join a home group, and spend the rest of your life figuring that out. The short answer is, if you're not breathing, nothing else matters. And what do you do then? What are the non-essential, contentious issues of our day? Service patterns, organ and band, baby baptism. They're important issues. But are these issues to divide us? Are you going to ask me to leave? Are you going to leave? Or will you just simply love me as I try to love you? Look at me as an example. You accepted me. You loved me. And I've grown. The church is a place with a space encouraging and nurturing accepted people to grow in Christ-like maturity through unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, acting always with love. Look at the believers around you. They are different to you. But they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And you will stand in the entirety of your being, in the full experience of what it is to be human, in life and in death, as this passage says, in its close. To finish, in verse 8, in life, we will stand as we are freed from sin. And in death, we will stand as Christ has enslaved us to himself for all eternity. Amen.